piano once said, work, 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 work. But seriously, whether you like it or not, work is becoming a more important and lasting part of your life, and young people today are more career-driven than ever. However, the working landscape has changed a lot over the last 15 years. In the Bonkers.ie Guide to Adulting, we try to demystify the most important aspects of your finances. And in this two-part episode, we're tackling the issue of work in 2019. In the first part, we look at the landscape of work while talking to Marie Sherlock of Ireland's largest trade union, SIP2. Then in the second part, we speak to Orla Donaher about the best ways to secure a role. So here it is, the Bonkers.ie Guide to Adulting. So, you want to work in 2019? Part 1. The Landscape Okay, welcome to the second episode of the Bonkers.ie Guide to Adulting with me, Connor Dever. Today I'm joined by Marie Sherlock. Marie has a BA in Economics from and political science, a master's in advanced macroeconomics and advanced econometrics, a master's from Cambridge in regional, urban and environmental economics. She was the head of manifesto development for the Labour Party and currently is an economic advisor and head of policy and equality for Ireland's largest trade union, SIP2. Marie, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. So Marie, I think to start us off, maybe just kind of give us a brief overview of your role at the moment. Okay, so as you said there, SIP2 is the largest trade union in the country. We have over 200,000 members. Um, Fortunately for us, we're certainly growing our younger membership um, at the moment, which is really important in terms of those workers of the future. When we look at the scale of workers coming into the Irish workplace at the moment, in terms of my own role, I'm head of both equality and policy. In terms of a policy, uh, so I suppose providing advice across a whole range of factors in terms of economic and social policy to, to the leaders of our union to our NEC and I suppose in some ways I suppose uh, uh, looking at those key issues that are affecting working people and their families of all ages so housing is obviously a huge issue for for our members at the moment precarious work uh, the health system access to childcare and indeed those working childcare themselves they're some of the biggest policy priorities for us at the moment but of course you know they're one of very many because we're a general union we have members in almost every sector of the Irish economy with regards to quality then um, so again, um, I suppose one of the founding principles of our union, and we're over 100 years old, was, uh, I suppose, that, that basis of uh, dignity in the workplace and fairness in society. So it's not just about the workplace, but it's also about workers' livelihoods and, 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 and their lives in society and, that, and, and that, that it is fair and just so in terms of our tax system but also in terms of some of the biggest social issues of our time um, certainly like you know last year SIP2 made a decision to support the referendum to repeal the Eighth Amendment um, I think at the moment we're, we're talking about the divorce referendum um, yet to make a decision on that but we would probably come out and very uh, very much support um, uh, the changes that are currently being proposed so you know it is very much about uh, uh, that promotion of equality in society, looking at the interests of our members and also developing um, in particular female and migrant leaders within our own movement um, because I think that is really important um, in terms of within workplaces. Um, I suppose in the past we'd see traditionally um, more men relative to females uh, taking leadership roles and becoming shop stewards or officials or making that argument about why working conditions should be better. So we, we really realize we have a big job to do in terms of promoting more women um, into leadership roles and indeed migrants as well and when you look at the scale of the migrant population within the Irish workforce really significant and of course growing then you know we have a job to do in terms of developing and, and, and growing those leaders. Yeah, I want to circle back to the equality aspect of it, because that's a particularly difficult thing to achieve. But it's also even difficult to define, you know, kind of what it is that you want to achieve, I think. So how how do you go about tackling that from the start? Yeah, so look, obviously, like, you know, well, particularly with regards to women, like it's, it's obviously huge, right? And like one of the big things that we're looking at at the moment is, for instance, the 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 gender pay gap or inequality between men and women in the, in the Irish workplace, and 
I think most people, if you were to stop them on the street and say, you know, what is the biggest thing? They probably talk about the gender pay gap, right? And uh, and and we have there's a number of mechanisms to overcome that. At the moment, we have a bill going through um, the Oireachtas, uh, which. I suppose really is aimed at bringing about greater pay transparency within companies because at the moment you know companies don't have to report what they pay their employees if they're a publicly uh, public company then they do have to report what their CEOs are paid but you know but if you're a private limited company which is the vast majority of companies in this country you don't have to report what people are paid some will volunteer to do that in their annual return and and, and what we do know then is that there's a whole system of uh, I, I suppose set of, of differences between male and female workers now of course in Irish law it is prohibited to pay a man or a woman more than a man or a woman doing the, sa- the, the, the same job. So that so that's not it in terms of what's driving the gender pay gap. It seems to be the first thing that people, you know, kind of contrarians of, you know, people, uh, skeptics of the gender pay gap bring up. So, but my question is like, if companies don't, aren't beholden to actually reporting what they pay their staff, how is this being monitored? Yeah, so 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 the the bill, and we're very much supporting it at the moment, is actually seeking to to, to get um, employers to report the differences between male and female staff, uh, part time staff, temporary staff, um, uh, to break them into quartiles. So, like, as in, you know, who occupies the bottom twenty five percent of 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 those paid in the company, who occupies the t- the top twenty five percent, and in some ways, right, by doing that, by shining that light on on what uh, employers are paying their staff we may have a greater understanding I suppose the, the hope and it's a hope and an aspiration because it's still very new across the developed world is that companies will be much more careful and I suppose really when we look at the reasons behind the gender pay gap right so you know most people think of the motherhood gap or the motherhood, the motherhood penalty, right? So women uh, take time out from the workforce, come back in, or go to, yeah, take come back in and then fall a little bit further behind their male counterparts. But that's really only a, a, accounts for a certain um, share of, or, or a certain um, percentage of, of why that gender pay gap is there. We know that the prevalence of part-time work, and there's more women in part-time work, a uh, higher share, sorry, of women in part-time ra- work relative to men. And what's re- a real concern to us is what we call that part-time low-paid trap. So, um, and one of the things that we're pushing to see in the legislation, actually, is to compare full-time staff with part-time staff in terms of their hourly rate of pay. Because then we begin to get a sense that if I'm in full-time work and if you are on part-time work for a number of years, my, you know, perhaps my prospects of promotion are far greater relative to yours. Maybe you're stuck in that low-paid uh, position and stay there. Now you're, you're like as in, you know, it, it's, it, it, it's, it's not a judgment on what you're paid, but rather what you're paid relative to the person who's in full-time work. So we know that there's a lot of women trapped in that part-time, yeah, in that part time low wage trap I think the other thing as well is with regards to negotiation and there is some really exciting research now coming out of the UK and the US with regards to so Yes, there are more women being promoted now than what there were before, okay? It's something Sheryl Sandberg brought up in her book, yeah. Lean In. But, right, we're, as women, we're not as good at negotiating yeah. that pay increase relative to men. So we get the promotion, but, you know, we don't hammer out as good a deal compared with if a man was after getting the job. And that plays into it as well. Now, that's much harder to try and, um, I suppose, uh, elicit information on. But... You know, the, the but, but, but I suppose we would hope that by at least having greater pay transparency, you begin to shine a bit of a light on it. I think the other thing, and certainly fr- from our perspective in SIP2 and across the wider trade union movement, you know, and, and, and there, there is no ambiguity with regards to this is fairly clear, that where there is strong collective bargaining, strong um, uh, trade union coverage, right, uh, there tends to be less wage dispersion between the highest and the lowest paid within firms. And by extension, there tends to be less of a pay gap. So we know that collective bargaining is one of the great weapons or tools to actually overcome that inequality between men and women in the workplace. Yet unions are, are not as prevalent as they once were. 
No, uh, listen, we have a huge challenge, of course. Um, I, I think though the, the one thing is that there's a, there's a fair share of fatalism out there as to the trade union movement, but certainly... I think, I think that's pretty widespread for everything. Yeah, you know, it's well, not just well, well, there, there is that, there is that. But, 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 but certainly, um, uh, you know, on the President Michael D. Higgins uh, hosted to, uh, a day, um, uh, an event yesterday to celebrate activism and trade unionism and, and, and activism across the broad broader um, uh, sphere uh, um, in Orson for May Day yesterday and certainly looking around the room and the, and, the, and the many young people who are very committed to I suppose fairness in the workplace standing shoulder to shoulder with their co-workers uh, in, in the attempt to try and deliver better terms and conditions I think there is um, an appetite out there uh, for people to um, to certainly uh, become to, to, to join trade unions that they realise that together they are stronger because divided um, of course people are very much on their own and you know one of the things that we you know really saw during the bad years was that um, you know, uh, there are certain companies I uh, call them kind of the, the beanbag brigade. So during the good times, there was a lot of perks and it was all very cool. And the very minute there was a recession, a lot of those perks disappeared. But there was no negotiation about it. It was unilateral, right? And people then woke up to the fact that actually, you know what, maybe it's not as easy to be solely on my own or, you know, like as in, it, it's actually better to be in, to have that sense of collective. Um, so hopefully that's one of the positive things from the recession is that people actually realise that actually there is power in numbers. But it is an argument that we need to continually put forward to young workers and those coming into the workplace and there's no doubt it is a huge challenge for the trade union movement to try and recruit but we absolutely are recruiting and I look at one of the campaigns that we have within SIPTU at the moment which is the Big Start campaign which is recruiting those who are working in uh, the childcare sector so there's a very low paid sector um, with really committed people, people have gone off who've, 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 who've undertaken a lot of work to, 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 to achieve qualifications and yet are earning very little money and, and indeed in some very precarious situations but they're very committed to their careers very committed to their jobs and they want to see a, a, a better sector you know, for themselves and for the children who are attend, who are using those services, and indeed for parents as well. And we have so many young, young, particularly young females now coming into our union who realise that you know, in so many questions, you know, you can have quite small numbers of staff, but together, you know, that they can actually make an impact uh, in terms of how we lobby government and how we talk to the employers and so forth. And what about the informal kind of childminders as well? Like, would they be? Are they included? Uh, so at the moment, no, of course, they're, they're open to join if they so wish. But at the moment, I suppose we're very much focusing our energies on what we might call centre based facilities or creches, because really in terms of the the solutions to um, well, well, I suppose if you look at where the bulk of those who are who, who have qualifications right in the childcare sector, they tend to work in the creche facility. It's more much more patchy than in the child minding sector. Some uh, some do, uh, and, and some don't. You know, um, some are registered, some are not. Um, there's a for, there's a system of registration in this country if child minders wish to 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 to. to. So I'd imagine it probably presents its own kind of difficulties in is, trying to integrate it, them. But, but ultimately, it's an informal sector, the childminding sector, whereas obviously if you're in a creche, you're subject to inspections uh, by the Department of Education and by HICWA. Um, uh, and, uh, well, I think it's HICWA. Uh, but you're subject to an inspection regime. There's, uh, in terms of the delivery of the ECC scheme, which is the, the, the two years for age three and four-year-olds, you know, that's a fairly regulated um, system of, of, of education uh, for, for, for preschool children um, so so it, you know I, I suppose and, and, it, and it tends to be where the, the you know the, there are obviously numbers within workplaces as opposed to the, the frag, very fragmented situation of, of child minders Sure um, so you kind of touched on it there a little bit uh, some differences that you notice between kind of the, the good old days and kind of now I, I feel like People who are entering into the workforce now or people who are finding themselves in the workforce now are presented with a very, very different landscape than they, you know, might have been the case 
before the crash and, you know, during the good old days, as you refer to them, what changes have you noticed? What changes over the last kind of 15 years in the landscape have you noticed? Okay, so I suppose one of the really interesting things over the last 10 years is that there's actually fewer young people in employment now compared to 10 years ago or sorry, 10 or 15 years ago. And one of the key reasons for that is is education. Um, so certainly when we look at the data, or when I looked at the data, let's say comparing 2007 to 2017, I think we had about 240,000 less people in, uh, in, the, in the workplace aged 19 to 24 compared with 2007. Um, so even though we're growing, you know, like as in, you know, we have record numbers of employment now. Yeah, I thought now. the boom was supposed to be back. Like what's going on? Absolutely. But, 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 but the age profile has changed. And that's because people are staying in education for longer. And I suppose one of the fascinating things is that, in particular, if you look at the the geographical spread of where young people were in employment, age 19 to 24, um, during the boom years, in particular, there are areas in the northwest of this country, particularly in Donegal, particularly in Wexford, parts of Galway, where um, large cohorts of young men in particular were leaving school early or getting their leaving cert and then going straight into the construction um, industry. Um, and, uh, you know, anecdotally, my own husband, you know, would, would have had his, like friends of his who thought he was mad to be going off to college um, in the early 2000s because they were off making a thousand euros per week in a building site, you know, whereas he was costing his parents money to go to college uh, in Donegal. And, and and certainly, of course, that... Now, odd, now those people are off in Australia. And those people are, in, well, some are off in Australia, right? Or they've had to reskill to do something else. But I think one of the scarring effects, and, and probably it perhaps is a positive scarring effect, if I can put it like that, from the recession, is that there is um, a, a, a real appetite now to make sure that people have, young people have some sort of qualification before they enter the world of work. Um, I think the other uh, big issue, particularly that presents at the moment, is that there is a growing appetite for apprenticeships. So again, some of those young men, some young women, but in particular young men who went into those construction apprenticeships, you know, they were available in the 2000s. there is a real difficulty now in terms of the availability of some of those apprenticeships, even though we're crying out for workers in the construction industry. But the structure of the construction industry means that there is an issue in terms of offering some of those apprenticeships. Um, and, and and I think broadening out that concept of apprenticeships, because I think one of the, the, the what we're belatedly waking up to is that not everybody needs to go to a university or it needs to get a tertiary education because not everybody's suited to that. And when you look at Ireland, it's above, above average levels of tertiary education relative to other countries. Now, we kind of like is in clap ourselves on the back and say that's a really good thing. But then the, the real issue is, are, are Who's all build of those houses? students, well, yeah, but are, are all of those students actually using what they learned in their particular courses? Yeah in the world to work afterwards you know it's the transferability there and I think you know some of those questions are, have been talked quite a bit about over the past number of years and and there and a kind of a belated realization that we need to have an apprenticeship system a much broader apprenticeship system and in fairness that you know that the, the groundwork has been put in place for that now so we're seeing it in the likes of finance we're seeing it in more services and and in some of the more traditional sectors as well uh, like the ESP or, 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 or construction but I think as a model of education into the future we certainly and certainly my union feels really strongly about this that we actually push that notion of apprenticeships so I think that 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 has been one of the big differences over the last number of years I think the other difference as well is that when we look at the numbers in part-time work so again um the the numbers in part-time work um Certainly, when we looked at the data of 2017, but 47 percent of those uh, aged uh, up 50 or well, I suppose 19 to 24 um, were in some type of part-time work, um, which is almost a doubling of the figure back in 2007, right? So, um, so we, we had more younger people in full-time work back in 2007, but I suppose the reflection that more people are now in education and delaying full in 
entry into the labour market or in, uh, into their careers, um, but they're taking up part-time work. Um, more, more, more young people are taking up part-time work now than what they did before. Now, that is fine if it is decent employment, right? If they're decently paid, if they've got a contract, if the hours are well rostered, etc. But we do know that about 10% of that cohort say they feel underemployed. So there is a, a greater demand for hours, um, uh, but they're not getting those hours. Um, and, and certainly in our experience as well, um, it tends to be the younger age cohorts, but not exclusive now, but it does tend to be the younger age age cohorts who are more exposed to precarious work practice. Now, can you explain to those who are unfamiliar with the term what precarious work means? Yeah, so I think the first thing to say is there's no single definition of precariousness, right? But I suppose typically we tend to think of it, think of it as a spectrum, right? So you could be very in, in a very precarious situation or a slightly precarious situation. But, but there's a number of factors that contribute to your precarity. So firstly, in terms of your uncertainty with regards to the hours that you're working. So, you know, if you know the hours you're going to be working a particular week, then, you know, th- like that's fine. But, but many people people will have an uncertainty. I think the second thing is with regards to the adequacy of income, okay? So you may have, um, you know, your 39 hour weeks, but 39 hour week, but you may be in the minimum income, right? With no prospect of progressing. And that leads you into a set of circumstances then where it's really difficult to access quality housing, to be able to plan your future, plan your lives, all of that, right? Um, And I suppose part and parcel of that as well in terms of the adequacy part is both income, but also in terms of security of tenure in your job. Are you on a fixed term contract or are you in permanent, like ideally be in permanent contract, but maybe people are on casual employment or temporary employment or fixed term employment, fixed term contract employment. And I suppose the last part of it is access to um, the social welfare safety net. So at the moment, um, uh, you need to be unemployed for, uh, well, it used to be four out of the seven days, but actually they've stretched it out now to over the 14 days. Um, so it's eight out of the 14, if I recall from memory. So it's it, it, it makes it a little bit more flexible now compared with the, the, the uh, I, I suppose, 10 years ago. But but the, the in terms of the ability to access job seekers allowance um, or job seekers benefit, is quite strictly regulated and you know if somebody finds themselves having to take up employment for let's say five mornings in the week so they're they're not available for employment in the morning but they're available for employment every afternoon then they can't access state benefits for those uh, particular hours and i suppose remember as well that if you access those state benefits that's a passport or a gateway into further uh, labour market supports, training and what we might call labour market activation. I know some people don't like that term, but basically those supports to help people get into full-time employment um, or, 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 sorry, take up employment full stop. So, so there, so it, you know, precariousness is, is a spectrum um, in terms of the scale of it here in Ireland. Well, we know that, and, and of course, this is the thing, there's a huge debate. You can define it in a whole variety of ways, right? And this is the big thing about statistics, you know. You might have one statistic, I have another statistic. So, you know, it's very important that people are... For every statistic, there's an equal and opposite uh, statistic. Absolutely, <laughs> right? But when we look at those who are in part-time underemployment, who are in... Um, uh, temporary employment um when we look at those two added together uh for memory it's about 180,000 people in this country um the number of people who are part-time underemployed is about 115,000 people in this country and actually what's really interesting is the numbers of people in part-time work is beginning to uh decline um which is a good thing because we know the vast majority of jobs are coming into full-time employment now so that's that's to be welcomed that's a positive but we know that the numbers in part-time underemployment have remained stubbornly high 
um, at well in excess of 100,000. So the, I think the average for 2018 was about 115,000. And so that's a very real issue because people are trapped in that part-time employment. They're looking for more, for more hours, but the structure of employment in their workplaces is preventing them from accessing th- those, those additional hours and indeed the betterment of their incomes um, uh, in terms of their livelihoods. So, so, so that, that is an issue. And, and I suppose, you know, you know we, we have a lot more research to do in terms of the sectors that's prevalent in, how we overcome it. Um, typically, we know that if you're in a unionised workplace, that issue is going to be far less compared but if you're in a non-unionised workplace. Yeah, one of the most striking things about precarious work is that, it, well, of course it's not new, but it's the jobs in which people are working precariously. They're not working for the, you know, mom and pop shop down the road. They're working for big multinational technology companies in often so cases. So I think, I think that there's a few things there, right? First thing is, precarious work is not new right like my union was founded because of the casualization of labor on the docks of dublin a hundred years ago yeah. right and over the decades we've seen you know and, and not getting into a history lesson here but if you think of the you know the uh, the, the labor <laughs> the labor is in the <coughs> excuse me in the agricultural industry um it, during the 50s and 60s in which unions went out to organize when you think of innovations then in the 90s in terms of uh fixed term contracts agency workers if and when contracts zero hour contracts so you know it, i suppose precarious work is all exploited labor exploited work has always existed but of course in different shapes and forms and and you are right there's kind of there's a new challenge now to that right in terms of i suppose uh, technology and, and and the growth of big business right but i think it is important to say that certainly in our experience and when we look at the 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 the, the, the data as well on this um that you know, we see within some very conventional firms. So, you know, some firms that are around a long time, um, they have began begun to start adopting uh, precarious work practices. So like as in, you know, the building up of a very significant body of temporary workers alongside a body of permanent workers and, and depending on those temporary workers and, you know, uh, and a whole variety of other of or, or, or in terms of working hours, so uh, flex, not even flexible working hours. Sorry, uncertain working hours. So particularly, um, I'm thinking of in the aviation sector, we had to sort out a situation um, a period of time ago whereby people in Dublin Airport. Um, were finding themselves in very difficult circumstances during the winter months because their hours were dramatically cut. Obviously, during the summer, they were working very good hours, but during the winter, they were working very few hours. And, you know, they're, you know that, that puts them into a very perilous situation of paying mortgage, paying childcare, and all of that, or indeed paying rent. So... Um, so, so, so I think the, the key thing is to say we see precarious work practices within very conventional um, uh, employments, and then within the much newer employments within the big tech um, firms, well, we see that there's a share of, of those of, of people working there that are directly employed. Of course, there's a large number as well that are indirectly employed. Mm-hmm. But it is not certainly true to say that the new companies and the new sectors are you know it, new forms of employment and the old firms mm-hmm. are you know traditional and safe jobs that that is not the case um and uh, but i suppose wh- wh- what is happening though is that rather than looking at the new versus old firms it's rather what are the key drivers of some of the, of, 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 of the changes within firms? And uh, interestingly, Eurofound and others have done some really um, interesting research on, you know, what are the changes? So we know the first is automation. Again, automation has been around for the past 300 years. It's not new, right? But I suppose in terms of uh, imagining what a more automated workplace is going to look like in 20, 30 years time, we're finding that difficult, right? Um, there's been a lot of talk, obviously, and I know the government has been talking about it as well, you know, saying that we're going to see a lot of jobs effectively wiped out in a number of years. Now, 
I would urge caution on that because what I think we're going to see with regards to automation is that there is going to be an increase in the number of tasks that are going to be automated. But in ter- but if, if you think about any worker, we do a certain number of tasks, right, on a regular basis. Um, but, you know, is automation going to replace whole jobs in full? It will replace some whole jobs in full, but it's not going to replace whole suites. Or certainly we don't know if it's going to replace whole jobs because the the jobs that many of us do require some very routine yeah. tasks versus then the 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 um the less automated tasks you know that you actually require you know a, a high degree of human intelligence for for instance like one of the most uh, under threat jobs in the united states i know for automation is truck drivers so like elon musk is coming out with the new self-driving truck and all that sort of stuff but they still maintain that the workforce isn't going to be completely decimated it's just going to be cut down where some drivers are going to be like looking after a herd of autonomous trucks yeah and 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 i think the other thing to to to, you know kind of a by way of almost reassurance as well is that you know there were jobs 30 years ago that my parents could never have imagined um that exists now like a content specialist. Oh, well, no, like is in big data. You know, yeah. like is in sure. How many people? If you were to ask anybody now what big data is, like there's only a, f- a fraction on the street who could tell you. And I'm sure in ten years time that'll be very. Ten years time is a long time. You know, three or four years time that that'll have even changed. So there are jobs that even you and I can't imagine now that will exist in a number of years time. So I think the thing is the world of work has always been changing, and it's to you know that we go with it. Now, obviously, what's important in all of that with regards to how workers. Uh, and, and I suppose, to, you know, to talk about the fears and concerns about workers here with regards to automation is that I suppose the, the, the key question is how resilient are workers going to be to any potential change? So you seem to think that there's always going to be jobs. They're just going to become a little bit more trivial. Um, no, not, not, not so much. Trivial is probably a bad word, but a bit more specialised, maybe. I don't even know if it's specialised. You see, I think, I, I, I like... Um, and perhaps there is a phrase and it's not jumping to mind but but there will always be jobs but we'll just use a different set of tasks and like you know one of the big things now that um uh many within the psychology and 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 kind of um work psychology fields talk about is emotional intelligence right so you know i suppose traditionally there was a huge emphasis put on IQ, you know, like is in, you know, how well you did in your exams and how, you know, you know, how good you wrote, wrote, wrote learning that you got your A's or your, you know, or whatever your, um, your first and in your degree and then went into a particular, particular uh, job. But it's actually emotional intelligence, which is obviously far harder to measure. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, actually going back to the earlier conversation about females, you know, uh, some very interesting conversations, t- particularly taking place in the UK at the moment, that, you know, women's, the, the value of women in the workplace may eventually be recognised because our emotional intelligence tends to be recognised being a little bit stronger than men. Now, look, that's a huge generalisation, right? I remember, hearing- I remember hearing Walter O'Brien talk about it. Um, so he's an American, an Irish-American businessman. He They actually based a television show on him because, like, when he was a child, he, like... He liked hacked the American government from like his home and like yeah. Cork or Kerry or whatever. Yeah. But he talked about uh, analyzing um, IQ, so your intelligence quotient, but also developing something called an EIQ, which is your emotional intelligence quotient as well. That you're saying that that's going to become more and more common. And I think that's going to, the, the value on that. There's going to be much greater emphasis and value placed on that into the future, so that we're not just like you know you spoke at the start about their own through my qualifications and I'm there cringing, but actually does it tell you much about who I am, right? Um, whereas actually this conversation is probably much more illuminating in that regard. So it's much harder to value and to tie down definitely they're not going to see on your linkedin page that paw patrol is on your tv absolutely every day. indeed indeed well n- not not every day but you know frequently frequently but the thing is um so so yeah so i th- i think there is you know so, so that's why i'm quite hopeful with regards to the future as well that we'll actually be able to recognize a greater scope of value of, of skill sets out there um uh, as opposed to maybe like even, you know, 20, 30 years ago where it was very qualification driven. Um, so so that's with, so, so going back to that workplace resilience, right? Or the, the worker resilience. So it is about recognizing the skills that they have adopted, you know, they've acquired to date. And um, 
and actually for older workers in particular being able to sometimes formally recognize those skills because we know that there's people now the, the the share is declining of course as people retire but we know that there's a significant cohort to people in their 50s or 60s in the workplace who maybe don't have formal qualifications or have less formal qualifications you know lower level of formal qualifications relative to a younger peer at the same grade um, but they obviously have a lifetime of experience right and, and and maybe skills that they have picked up so it was a real debate actually 10 years ago well more than 10 years ago now during the boom years about how we actually recognize that prior um, prior learning RPL and I think that debate is going to have to start back up right so there's that and then the second thing is actually how do you equip people with those tools and training to be then very adaptable right so that at least they know the basics with regards to using whatever technologies so they can learn on the job right okay that you know it can I, I suppose one of the things that is frequently said is that obviously the digital natives that are being born today will find that um, adapting to various technologies far easier than when I look at my 70-year-old parents who, yeah. you know, still have difficulty trying to deal with email. So, you know, so there is that um, that issue. I, I think that it is about that adaptability to the, the new innovations and developments that are going to happen within the workplace. And, and certainly from a union perspective, we'd be putting an awful lot of emphasis on supports to workers and it's not just about workplace specific training because again from an employer perspective completely understandable they just want to train their workers to the tasks yeah. that workers do in a particular workplace but I think we need to take a broader look at it um, and say well actually how do we make sure that they're uh, you know capable of dealing with a variety of workplaces and so we have to look at the whole state supports to training for, for people at work Particularly now, as we're moving into a space where uh, this concept of full employment, now I don't fully share that definition of full employment because it's measured in terms of unemployment. It should be measured in terms of the employment rate, which we can actually drive up higher in this country. We still have... Um, you know, 20% of the potential labour supply in this country are not uh, would take up work in the morning, but can't because of a number of structural factors so um but 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 i suppose the key point is now that we have such large numbers of employment and that employment is growing we need to look at training people in the workplace as much as we looked at training people who couldn't get into a job to start with so 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 there's automation right so that's the first thing then there's digitalization of production right which is the another key trend or factor and that is I suppose even sitting here in an office now and how we can be monitored in terms of our productivity, in terms of the various technologies that we have at our disposal um, in the production of either services or indeed goods. Um, uh, Bonkers.ie is a fantastic example in that regard of how you've been able to, I suppose, exploit a particular technology that's out there uh, to be able to provide the service that you do. And certainly we see it, um, you know, within manufacturing and within production that the digitalization of 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 those work processes um, has a, p- a potential to transform how work is organized so again we know that the workplace of the past where you had people you know the factory floor and the boss's office you know as i suppose most, most younger people have the, the from the films and certainly this is my own pre- impression because from film from you know for so long ago but you know like as in the the the, the, the the factory floor and the boss's office is somewhere else and they're looking down at all the workers you know that's obviously moved on so much right um but i think that's going to move on even further because we do have within many firms now kind of autom- uh, like as in you know individual units of employment within companies right and i think that is going to become um accentuated a lot more right uh, because of the technologies that are available so you know it has implications for how work is managed for how we present in terms of going physically going into an office and all of that and i suppose the last um issue then is of course the the the, the rise of digital platforms which really have transformed how we think about companies um uh 
you know, how they're established, how they grow, like is in, uh, you know, digital platforms are so radically different. They in, in some ways transform how we think about companies because of course there's kind of almost an infinite pool of labor that they can draw on so they can they can just keep growing and growing and growing and um and just especially technology technological companies that have an incredible reputation for being a great place to work and then they bring you in on a temporary contract where you get a meeting on a tuesday and fired on a wednesday you know so so there, there is that absolutely as well um i suppose pr um kind of funny but like is in you know the uh, I'm sure the PR experts will will probably tell you much more about the history of PR the might of PR but certainly uh, in, in terms of those great places to work going back to my beanbag analogy yeah. a number of minutes ago so great if you're in the door and you're performing well and whatever else and you've access to all those perks but you know if the fit isn't right or if there's if there's a particular difficulty and because many of them are not unionized then then, then difficulties do present yeah so I I sent you on a link that I said we were going to discuss. It was an article that was in the journal this week. Drug dealing seen as more attractive way to earn money for some young Irish people. New research found the local drug economy, unlike precarious work, recruits young people by incentivizing and enticing them. So this for me, if anything, would be a red flag that precarious work is kind of straining at its leash. It's getting to a point where it's actually becoming a bit of a problem. Would you agree with that? And how do you tackle it? So... I, I read the article, right, and I suppose one of the things that, um, and obviously it's very hard to uh, condense a whole body of research into um, into an article, um, but I think one of the key things is that we have to look at um, a whole variety of cultural um, and, uh, and other factors in terms of what leads people into um, uh, I, I suppose the, the, the economic and family conditions that people are, emerge from to to ultimately work in an illegal sector like drug dealing, right? And um, and, and I would need to read the research in more detail to be persuaded that there are, you know, this is going to be the big thing in, the few, in terms of there's going to be lots of people persuaded that they actually, you know, that the money is to be made yeah. here. No, I don't, look, I don't think, I don't think people who aren't picking up enough shifts are all going to go out and start buying cocaine and, you know, yeah. dishing it out to their yeah. friends. Yeah. But surely the uptick is is worrying. Oh, no, oh, and sorry, and I don't mean to for a moment minimise it because absolutely it, it is frightening. And certainly we know that in certain parts of the city in areas that, that are not too distant from where I live, certainly there are real problems right but again it comes back to uh, how much economic opportunity um, and long-term perspective has been instilled in some of those children when, when they're children in both primary and secondary school and looking at the opportunities around them and it, like interestingly I did a bit of work last year on the northeastern city so um, and uh, w- one of the really striking things is people talk about the high rate of unemployment in the northeastern city well actually the majority of those living in the northeastern city have work right but the key thing is it's the adequacy of that work and certainly when we look to um, sectors like retail or indeed hospitality in the past some of these would have been good unionised jobs people would have had decent hours they were proud to work in the likes of Cleary's or indeed other big establishments in Dublin City um, uh, that provided good employment um, and we know that, know that so many jobs in retail and hospitality, in particular hospitality um, have become highly precarious you know, so almost what we might call entry-level labour market occupations. So anybody can go in and do very little training and 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 very high turnover in those jobs. And I think there's a real issue there. Instead of kind of saying to communities, we need the Googles of this world to go in, build a big company, you know, like as in plant themselves in there and, and recruit all the local people, which, listen, great you know we need that as well but we also need to look at the employment that people are actually in and look at the adequacy of that income and if we can begin to understand why some of those incomes are not adequate right um, and it's because of the structure of some of the sectors that are out there at the moment um, then uh, th- 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 then we need to um, th- th- then I think it leads us into those conversations then about 
you know, why people look to alternative employment opportunities, yeah. you know? Yeah, so like... And that's not now to cast a, like as in, you know, the, the article's about the whole of the city, not just about, yeah. you know, any one particular part, but certainly in my experience, it, it, it's about improving the employment that people currently have, you know? Um, and again, that access to apprenticeships really vital as well. Yeah, but... You know, it's hard to ignore the thousands and thousands of people that are that are being employed by technology technology companies that are worth hundreds of billions that are still employing. And like, let's not beat around the bush. We know why they're here. It's the twelve percent tax. So, like, if we tighten up our restrictions around employment, so that people are not in these kind of short precarious contracts with these multi-billion-dollar companies, surely that has to happen in some way no so i suppose just just important um for our listeners to understand we have a new set of legislation in place now um uh, that came into force on the first of march which actually seeks to try and tighten up um uh, i suppose well it actually tries to force employers get their house in order i think that's probably the best way to describe it uh, with regards to those employers who choose to have their workers um, operating in very un- uncertain conditions, right? So, uh, in particular, if a worker is has a contract for a particular set of hours but gets less than those hours, um, then uh, th- then if, if if the worker is not called in or if they if if they if they do less than those hours, then the employer has to pay more, right? Um, at three times the rate, um. Uh, if they choose to have those workers in, in kind of what we call if and when contracts. So it seeks to um, eliminate in almost every circumstance zero-hour contracts. And then with regards to those if and when contracts, it seeks to tighten up those. So like as in if an employer chooses to go down that road, they have to pay for it, mm-hmm. right? Um, the other part of that employ- that that, bit, that that act that we now have is to also tighten up a situation uh, whereby again if people find themselves in very uncertain hours or their hours fluctuate quite a bit then after a period of a year that they can go into what we call a banded hour contract so taking the average over the year and put them into a a, a set of banded hours so again these are improvements for workers in terms of creating workplace certainty doesn't get around the issue of the adequacy of the income or well not in its entirety or certainly the access to social welfare supports if they do find themselves working part-time hours but it is a start um and certainly in the union movement we'd always be pointing to the huge issue with regards to self-employment and this is a big issue with regards to some of the the uh, I, I suppose both construction the construction sector and some of the big tech sector here uh, companies here that they have large numbers in self-employment and ultimately it's about tightening up some of those conditions so that um those who genuinely want to be self-employed can be, but for for the most part, those who are forced into being self-employed because of the decisions of employers, that that is effectively um, stamped out. So if you were to give people advice for traversing the kind of complicated employment landscape that we have at the moment, what would you say to them? For people to actually understand, this is going to sound like a very basic and almost stupid point to make, but you know, you'd be surprised the amount of people who don't understand this about their job. Actually knowing what's in your contract of employment. So again, this bill, this new act that we have um, in Irish legislation now um, mandates employers within the first five day, days of employment to issue with a, a, the, your basic terms and conditions, right? Um, because up to now, some firms, very good, you'll get on day one. Other people, you could be wait, other firms, you'll be waiting months, right? And so that's really important, okay? Um, so for people to actually understand what their terms and conditions are so that then when there is a change proposed okay and actually what they're earning as well per hour because we all tend to focus on our take-home pay right we're less focused on what our actual gross income is and how it actually moves year on year if at all okay so i think first for first things first understanding what your actual terms and conditions are i think the second thing then is because that opens quite your own. Quite your often, office. though, you don't see the contract until you have to sign it when you've been given the job. Yeah, yeah perhaps. And I suppose it's asking for it, you know, because you're entitled to it, you know. So So when you get a job, ask for your contract. Yeah, 
Absolutely. And read it. And read it. This is it, you yeah. know, because a lot of people will, you know, they'll, they're delighted to get the job. They'll sign along the dotted line and, and that's fine. But then an issue arises. So like actually having a firm understanding about what your annual leave is. Now, some people will be able to give you chapter and verse and other people are far less clear. You know, I suppose it depends on people's priorities as well. But, you know, what is the situation with regards to pay? particularly with regards to, you know, younger workers, like as in, you know, are, are you paid for overtime? Maybe not. You know, are you paid for weekends? Um, in terms of how, how, you know, how are your hours rostered? Who are you reporting? All of those things, right? Okay, they're very straightforward things, but just having a clear sense of that. So that's the first thing. I think the second thing then is looking around you and saying, you know, okay, I'm in the door now. Um, and, you know, it, in terms of the, those who I am working with, um, you know, are they a member of a trade union or a staff association? How do um, things change within a firm, right? So, like I said, what is the relationship between management and staff in terms of how changes are agreed? Is it that there's a diktat comes down from management or is there a much, uh, you know, is, 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 is there a much more transparent process or open process where there's an engagement with either a group of workers or it's individual or maybe in a collective sense? So have a look around you and see who else is in the workplace. And and if there is a trade union, then just join. Right. It's not going to cost very much. Right. Um, but it is, an, I suppose. Uh, and we tend to hate the word insurance policy, right? But it's really important, um, uh, I, I suppose, I'm using that word now that I hate, insurance, that like is in that, you know, uh, that you know that you're standing with others, right? That you're not on your own if there's a particular issue. And indeed, when it comes to a pay negotiation or anything else, that you know that there'll be somebody else going in there bashing for you and others, right? As opposed to you having to go in and do that yourself. So I think it's really important. It's like Ireland by itself is pretty powerless, but in, among, in the European Union, it's incredibly strong. Listen, you couldn't have, you couldn't have said it better. Absolutely, right? Um, so... Uh, and I think they're probably two of the most important things in understand in in, 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 in when you, when you start a job, um, because ultimately, right? Um, I think you know most of us when we start into jobs and you know we're in our early twenties or whatever, you know, we kind of think the world is our oyster, and then after a few years and things happen or whatever else, and, and you realise actually the world can be a little bit of a different place. So really important getting those things right from day one. Um, and, uh, and actually understanding who you're working for and what your work is about. Um, is there anything else you want no, to plug? No, I think that's, that's, that's pretty much it. Economic advisor and head of policy and equality for Ireland's largest trade union, SIP2, Marie Sherlock, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. So that is part one of the bonkers.ie guide to adulting podcast on work in 2019 our second part is going to be all focused about uh, securing your dream role or your dream job or any job really for that matter we're going to be talking to orla donner from interviewtutor.ie so there's going to be some good stuff in there uh, we'd also remind you if you think you know somebody that might like this podcast please share with them and uh, don't forget to subscribe but until next time thank you so much i've been connor dever <laughs>